Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Released in 2007, directed by David Yates, written by Michael Goldenberg, based on the book by J.K. Rowling. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James, and we're continuing our Harry Potter saga. It's Thursday, so we're going to do the next one. Number which five. Is Order of the Phoenix, which is, I think it's like people have it usually in the middle of their lists if they rank Harry Potter movies. But I really enjoy this movie because this is the first time that David Yates stepped behind the camera as the director, and he kind of set the tone and did the rest of the Harry Potter films and Fantastic Beasts movies after this. Yeah, even though he changed the style a ton with Half-Blood Prince, with Deathly Hallows, he kept he created. He finally found his signature style for the franchise, which they adopted for the Fantastic Beasts. And yeah. he's been. He did a great job finishing out the series. He did a fantastic job with Deathly Hallows, and and the Fantastic Beasts movies are really well made for yeah. sure. I really like his aesthetic because it's kind of like he incorporated what Quran did in Prisoner of Azkaban, then kind of his own remix because Goblet of Fire took like a step back production wise and artistic vision wise in terms of that. But like he brought the great cinematography back that they did in Prisoner of Azkaban and uh, Slav. Romir Idziak, I think that's a, a Swedish cinematographer. He did the cinematography for this movie. He also did Gattaca, Black Hawk Down, so he brought a lot of artistic elements to the filming of it. Yeah, and the thing with Order of the Phoenix is it's by far the longest book. It's a, it's a huge book, so it was probably the hardest one to adapt into a film. Just be, one movie. Because there's so much in it. There's the, like we can't even talk about how many things are in the book that aren't in this film just because, you know, there's only so much time, and this is ironically the shortest movie. Is of it all really? The, all the films, it's the wow. shortest. Wow, and uh, Rotten Tomatoes has this at 77%, and then Critic scores 81%, then IMDb has it listed at 7.5, which are all very respectable numbers. Yeah, I think that this one, or the Phoenix, it, it's great at some points, and then at certain points, it's, it's just pretty good. Um, ultimately, this movie's different in terms of how Harry is depicted, and it's because of the story, because Harry is becoming darker based on his connection with Voldemort. So he oftentimes has lost his charm and a lot of his innocence in this film because he's dealing with these visions of Voldemort. He's dealing with Voldemort piercing his mind. And so that is rubbing off on him. Hence him, he's dealing with a lot of anger and resentment and he's not connecting to his friends and family anymore. Yeah, and it's not just the connection he has with Voldemort. Obviously his his nightmares are just ramped up. They're so much worse than they were the previous year in Goblet of Fire. And, and he's starting to be like, like part of the visions, it feels like he's the snake when he's attacking Arthur Weasley. But he's also dealing with like PTSD from the Triwizard Tournament of of watching Cedric die and watching his parents and dueling with with Voldemort and that whole situation, almost being killed multiple times. And also Dumbledore won't speak to him or won't look at him. His friends are acting odd towards them. They're acting like he's kind of losing his mind a little bit. A lot of people in the Wizarding World don't believe him that Voldemort's back. Like he didn't get any news from his friends from Owls because D Dumbledore told him to. The Daily Pro Prophet is making him out to be a giant liar in the entire wizarding community. And he's in, he, like you said, he's cynical, he's angry, but he also feels more alone than ever. Yeah, this is probably the most challenging time of his entire life, even given all the things he's experienced in terms of uh, encountering evil forces and encountering Voldemort in the past. But I think that the strength of the story and what makes it different from the other films is how on the nose J.K. Rowling was in the depiction of the media and the depiction of politics and how 
pol- politicians in um, big media outlets, they will control the thought of the populace with um, by inundating them with uh, a lot of speculation that oftentimes isn't even based on truth or reality. And they, they are able to influence um, massive members of the community to think a certain way and to have uh, to turn them against each other. And so this film, I think, illustrates how one side can be turned against the other side and how Harry has uh, his entire friend base has turned against him based upon what they're leading, reading in The Daily Prophet and what rumors and conjecture are, are hearkening up about him and Dumbledore. Dumbledore apparently lying about Voldemort. Yeah, Cornelius Fudge and the Ministry of Magic, they're using their power over the Daily Prophet, which is pretty much the only source of media we really see. There are other like news magazines and obviously the Quibbler, which is Luna Lovegood's father's magazine. That's kind of like the alternative source of information, but it also has a lot of wild, fantastical things in there. But like you said, they're turning the wizarding world with their power and control over information against Harry, but also against Dumbledore. So now Harry, his biggest threat in his life isn't just Voldemort anymore, as well as the Ministry of Magic, who's starting to politicize against him. So he has to, he's fighting against the system itself and against the government of the entire wizarding world. So it's in a lot of ways, it's the biggest, uh, 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 enemy he's ever had in his life yeah, up, and up to this point. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends or become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules for upcoming episodes. Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast, which we just did in our Ask Ben episode. And the best perk of all, all patrons, whether you're signed up for the $2, $5, or $10 tier, have access to weekly bonus episodes of the show that you can only see. No one else can see or listen to these. You only get access. Yeah, we just did a, a spotlight on Philip Seymour Hoffman, and we did The Princess Bride and Dead Poet Society. So it's so, been a lot of fun. Yeah, we've done five so far, so keep tuning in for those patrons. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfLostPodcast.com, to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Hit the notification bell, and thank you so much for tuning in around the world. And so in this film, we know Voldemort's back. Us, the audience, and also Harry and Dumbledore. We know Voldemort's back, but Voldemort is a a very smart uh, person where he doesn't want to make it known that he's back because he is secretly building his army. He's secretly building his forces. That's his biggest weapon at the point. Yeah, and he's disguised, and he's using influence of all the people who are loyal to him in certain areas of the Wizarding World to work for him and enabling him regaining power and what's really fascinating is we get nuggets of the history and like when it's harry's talking to sirius and sirius tells him that you know voldemort's army back in the day it wasn't just wizards and witches it was all manner of dark creatures and beasts and so that actually instills a lot of fear in the audience and so it wasn't just wizards it's like he had all sorts of monsters and giant creatures you can imagine we'll eventually see in deathly hallows like whether it be spider the giant spiders or or giants so pretty all manner of beasts were on his side in some capacity yeah we learned that with hagrid where he's going he's gone for the first half of the film and we find out that he's trying to parlay with the giants Dumbledore's trying to find support with some of them but Ultimately, they eventually choose the side of Voldemort. And also, in the books, they talk about how Lupin is trying to get into the underground scene of the werewolves and try to get support from them or to see if they're joining Voldemort. Who's talking to Kate Beckinsale? The, the, <laughs> the underworld vampires. <laughs> so, so, yeah, you're right. It's becoming more terrifying in a way. And this movie, it's really dark. And, like, this is the first film in the franchise where, we're like, 
the stakes are raised. This is serious. Beloved characters are going to die. It's like an episode of Game of Thrones. And, and a war is starting. You know, Harry asked Sirius, is there a war brewing? Is there something happening? And Sirius is like, it feels like it did last time around when Voldemort was rising to power. I mean, it would be so fascinating to see Voldemort's story originally, the 15 years previous when all this stuff went down, when he was dominating wizarding community. Would it, it would it be a fascinating read if, Instead JK, we, yeah. if JK ever explored it. Instead, we got Newt's commander. <laughs> <laughs> Who's a good character yeah, I, li- yeah. I like it yeah. i like it but but this film shows like you said that there are two sides and just how there are death eaters there are the order of the phoenix and this was the old gang and it's back together i love that that old photo of the old order and it's funny in that photo of the original order of the phoenix with it's got like james and lily potter and Sirius and all the in like the long bottoms and stuff they're actually weasley the, the Weasley's uncles are in it, and they were twins, too. And Fred and George, those actors who play Fred and George, played the uncles in that photo. That's so So great. if you look closely at the photograph, it's actually those actors. Yeah. And even though this movie is dark and people die, it's also really fun. It manages to, like, walk this great tightrope of seriousness and playfulness. There are some, like, truly hysterical moments in this film. And we even, like, Harry's first kiss with Cho Chang is in this movie. So uh, Yates and writer Goldenberg, they really just walk that tightrope of being fun and dark at the same time. And the reason why, why didn't Steve Cloves write this movie, really no one knows. There's no, like, great answer to it. His, his answer about it is really ambiguous. The belief is that, like, Goblet of Fire just took so much out out of him and he probably just needed a break from writing for a little bit because it's a huge endeavor to try to adapt these books into screenplays and I'm sure he's working freaking 8 to 10 hours a day just for an entire year just on the script. So there are two things that I you can notice are different about Order of the Phoenix compared to the other films. And so first of all, I would say the screenplay, the story, the way it's written, it feels different and that makes sense because Clovis didn't write it's the only one he didn't adapt. Why do you always say Clovis? It's Cloves? It's okay, Cloves. Still, yeah. Okay, Cloves. Cuz cuz he didn't adapt this one. And so uh, I think it lost that voice. He seems to have some cor- some kind of charm and ability to really perfectly adapt J.K.'s giant novels yeah. into movies condensed and still make them feel as amazing as the books themselves. Not that this isn't an amazing movie, but also I think the the music for this one, it just never feels right. Nicholas Hooper did yeah, it Nick, right. Yeah, Nicholas Hooper did it. Patrick Doyle did the Goblet of Fire. And Goblet of Fire, obviously not John Williams, but it was still pretty good for the film. Uh, I think he did a good enough job like trying to come like trying to balance like trying to lead up, follow up Williams, you know what I mean, which is an impossible task, but I think the music for this one uh, it just didn't feel right for the movie. It didn't feel Harry Potterish. It didn't feel magical. It has some nice moments, but it just didn't feel right for Harry Potter. I kind of disagree because I think what he did a great job with is like the themes of the characters. I mean, Dolores's Dolores Umbridge's theme is so good in this movie. Like that's maybe the best part of the music. Plus, mm. it is a little playful in a way in terms of how dark the screenplay is. But like we have the great stuff with Fred and George and the fireworks and that and that music because they you know they're starting to form wizard wizarding wheezes wheeze we, Weasley wizarding wheezes wherever, yeah, yeah. wherever that's called. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. It's it's hard to top what John Williams did. And then you can even say that I mean Alexander Desplat when he did Deathly Hollows, they're still pretty good. But I also like Half Blood Prince. What Nicholas Hooper did there instead of Order of the Phoenix. I yeah, I think Half Blood Prince is better than Order, but I just think Alexander Desplat's the only one who made a great score for Harry Potter movies with his Deathly Hallows one and two. Yeah, they those are absolutely fantastic, and he's a genius composer. So I think that it was good they got him on board for those last two. Yeah, but fortunately, there's so much in this book that 
you can still write a great screenplay even if you're not Steve Cloves. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts about the movie is we have like maybe the best battles in the entire oh, franchise. Yeah. I mean, we obviously the great big battle at the end of the movie with uh, Dumbledore and Voldemort, which you wish like there was more of that in the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. There's a little more in the books and stuff, but obviously Half Blood Prince is probably the biggest disappointment. Yeah, they cut of, they cut out so much they, action. They, from they Half-Blood. cut out the entire battle yeah. in in that movie in that movie. But again, you have so much to work with, and then. Also, we have the battles between the Order of the Phoenix and Death Eaters at the Ministry of Magic, which is really cool. It's so much fun seeing it happen. And then, but the thing is, between the battles, so with the with the uh, dement, with the uh, Death Eaters and the Order, when they fight, these are clearly like very sophisticated wizards, and they're all very well versed in in what they can do. But when you compare it to what Voldemort and Dumbledore do, you can see how on a different level they are compared to even the next level of great wizards because the magic they're performing in their battle is supersedes like anything they're they're doing in the previous battle, like just like creating dragon from fire and then using the the ball of water, like and turning the the glass into sand. Like there's insane stuff that happens in the Dumbledore Voldemort fight that shows like these are two of the greatest wizards to ever live, and even the next best wizards can't even compare to the magic they're able to perform. Like these are probably what they're doing are such complex and ancient spells that. Only a handful of people in history have ever probably been able to even contemplate doing them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, I'm sure some of them, some of the spells are something that they've experimented and created themselves. Yeah, exactly. Oh, maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. This, the giant fire snake, maybe yeah. Voldemort came up with that himself. Yeah, and even like that black like matter that he shoots at, Vol- at Dumbledore, like things like that, like I'm sure no one else can do. Yeah, so it's a, that's a really good, great point. But if you think about it, there's probably more magic in this movie than all the other movies, if you think about it. I mean, not only do we have the great battles between the Order and the Death Eaters than Voldemort and Dumby, but we got... Um, Voldy and Dumby. Voldy and Dumby. We have the creation of Dumbledore's army, and we get to see a lot of actual magic being performed by these students, and Harry has to become the trainer for everyone because, obviously, Dolores Umbridge, who's one of the most evil characters like I've ever seen in my life, has come in to change the entire school and so he's he's the Hermione like convinces him to create this this organization to teach everyone how to fight I love how everyone's like realizing how much of a warrior badass Harry has been for real like they start listing off like he killed the basilisk with the sword <laughs> he, <laughs> he defeated Voldemort like twice he can produce a Patronus yeah. I didn't know you could do that Harry it's like come on you you're surprised like the guy's the beat he's a beast out there in yeah. the school but I love I love um Dolores Umbridge I think she's one of the best characters that JK create created because she's such a fascinating character, she's such a contradiction. And in terms of the performance by Milda Stoughton is fantastic. She's perfect because Dolores has this horrible monster inside of her. And she's extremely cruel and evil. And she, we eventually learn she enjoys causing others to pain and she enjoys punish. I think her greatest thing, her greatest love is punishment. Like being able to punish other people, she gets joy out of, and that's like you actually brought up about the Patronus that she's has out at Death, in Deathly Hollows. Oh with yeah, Dement- we talked yeah. about the villains because, one. and she's like she's happy, she's in her happy place, punishing these people. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. So uh, just reiterating that what I was talking about in the Harry Potter villains episode is Dolores is such an evil person, even though she's surrounded by Dementors and causing horrible actions against innocent people, she still has a Patronus cast the entire time, and and she has the Horcrux around her neck, yeah. and she's so happy doing it all. Exactly, and Dolores is a, a walking contradiction because on the surface, and she's kind of like an actor. She's very much like an acting politician. Like she's like Patrick Bateman, yeah, she, bro. Yeah, exactly. She's got she wears all pink. She's Everything is super polite. She's she comes off as very kind, formalities, yes. formal, and very like easy tone, like a high pitched voice. 
but she has that temper that she lets out every once in a while. And it's a really great performance in the classroom scene when Harry starts arguing with her. And Dolores, she's trying to act nice, but you can tell she's about to break. And then when she does, she screams at the classroom, but she turns her back to the classroom. Like, she doesn't want them to see what she's really like, so she turns her back to them when she yells at Harry. And then she turns around and she's smiling again. And so she's all surface everything that the, everyone that she everything that she expresses on the outside is a, a ref, is not a reflection of what she's really like yeah and Dolores is obsessed with power she'll do anything to achieve more and more of it and she seems to only respect those who she believes have more has more power than her she even has like lack of respect for Dumbledore like so the first opening night when everyone comes to Hogwarts for the first night and Dumbledore is giving his speech to the students Dolores Umbridge when she's introduced she interrupts Dumbledore to give the speech and he's the headmaster and he's also the most powerful wizard in, in, in the world and she condescends him basically by doing that and she's like you said she's a very Con- contradictive and ironic character because uh, well, I'm sorry I love that speech when she says I see all these smiling faces looking up at me and they, they cut to the kids and they're all like blank faced at her <laughs> but that yeah but that act alone of interrupting Dumbledore lets us know immediately that she believes herself to be more superior than the greatest wizard to ever live basically and she also is very smart she doesn't let and in the Ministry of Magic she doesn't let her students use magic so her she takes over the defense against the dark, dark arts and now they're just doing a theoretical approach to get them through their examinations which is what school is for (laughs) and so what that does is it creates the opportunity to control a very large population of people of students basically as an authoritarian dictator and cruel leader she treats other magical beings as less than human like the centaurs when she says beings of near human intelligence and then she treats the other professors as they're all amateurs and they all don't deserve to be there and she even tortures students so dolores is a brilliant example of what the the trappings and the dangers of allowing the government to control things like education and and influence every aspect of your life like like you said this is like an authoritarian figure and 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 if they keep going down this line they're going to become an authoritarian government in society which they do which, become yeah they become in deathly hollows and becomes like a communist uh, society at that point in the film in the, in the series and so Dolores represents when you when the government gets too much power this is what happens it, be, it leads to horrible things and she's the one who sets the dementors out on Harry Potter and his cousin Dudley in the beginning of the film to little Winji. and she's the one that acts alone because she thinks it's the best interest of the Ministry of Magic. She thinks it's the best interest of Cornelius Fudge, who she respects and reveres. She has the portrait of him on his desk. And so because she respects power so much, so she attacks Harry Potter with the Dementors, and she's so insanely crazy that at Harry Potter's hearing, she acts like, (laughs) you're trying to insinuate that the Ministry of Magic was involved. It's like, you did it! Yeah, exactly. And she be- she's so vile and evil that Voldemort uses her as one of his greatest pawns by the end of the franchise. Yeah. Like, she becomes... Uh, is essential to his to his to his needs yeah, and she again she loves having the horcrux around her neck because she's so evil yeah i think it, she's one of jk's greatest creations and like you you've actually put it well like this movie sometimes it's not as enjoyable to watch and, I, and you're right i think it's definitely because dolores is such uh, a hated uh vile character that you don't you just came and look at her and uh, ironically jk based uh dolores umbridge on a woman she knew and worked with, but she just 
dis- like she was despicable and JK couldn't stand her in real life. I think it's the same way when people watch movies about World War II and like maybe there's a portrayal, a dramatic portrayal of, of Hitler in the film rather than the movie like Inglorious Bastards where it's a comic and satirical performance of that guy. So instead it's it's more, it's uncomfortable to watch if it's a dramatic performance like this. I think mm. that's kind of what people feel. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and another thing I love about the film is the, the depiction of the Death Eaters. I really love the design of that the Death Eaters, how they threw these masks on them, and that's like an ancient like uh, form of decoration for your face. And I don't think that was ever in the books how, them wearing masks yeah, like that. They did in Goblet of Fire. Yeah, and I thought it was a fantastic way to depict them. And I uh, this is also because when the Death Eaters apparate, um, they appear with black smoke, and that's something that we come to see for the rest of the franchise. Um, and but I don't think that's in the books like them appearing with black smoke he in the books It's I can't remember if it's black smoke, but they do have that flying technique because yeah. it's a spell that Voldemort has like, Created and teaches his death eaters. Mm-hmm. So they have like that flying capability to appear like that I yeah. think it might be black smoke. Okay. I can't I can't remember off the top of my head but I'm not sure if the order arrives the white smoke. Yeah, that's I, that's that, definitely just they're, they're trying to play off light and yeah, dark. That's not how they come on. Yeah, no way I kind of think that was a little corny for me. No, but yeah, I, me I think too. it's like treated like that's why heroes. they never did it again Yeah they stopped doing the white smoke for the other films because it did c- come off as a little cheesy. Yeah. But speaking of wardrobe real quick, Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet, like we talked about, created like that. Well, Alfonso did the the modern clothing to make it seem more realistic to to our world. And But Yates toned that down a lot in this movie, and he incorporated a lot more scenes of school wardrobes being worn in and out of lessons, but also with the disheveled look of what a... a teenager would do with their uniform like Harry or or Ron and and the other students but also he did that with a combination of normal clothing but I actually liked it because it makes us feel more like we're at Hogwarts with the students and and they created this great balance where really the only time they're not wearing their uniform in some kind of way is like at Hogsmeade's or at Hogsmeade or when they're outside of Hogwarts but there are a lot of scenes away from school yeah and I love the outfit that Harry has to wear at the ministry trial like it's this ragtag um like jacket and blazer and pants that he has to wear it's similar to what Sirius yeah, wears like exactly. that goldish color but i will say that at the end of the film there's i the wardrobe when the kids are walking away from school and they do that final shot i would say ron and hermione's wardrobe seem appropriate but harry's wardrobe i don't think he would wear a corduroy blazer by choice i think that they because he wore that for the trial yeah. but it doesn't seem like something harry would wear yeah maybe you should work in wardrobe department i'm just saying for know, his personality. but actually speaking of wardrobe again Harry wears a cardigan in the Order of the Phoenix, and he does that because his favorite professor was, I mean, was Lupin, and Lupin wears a cardigan, so Daniel Radcliffe actually came up with that idea to show respect for his favorite teacher and his mo- one of his most important father figures in his life, Lupin, and he wears a cardigan in this movie a lot. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, he does, yeah, he, Lupin's always wearing a cardigan. Yeah. But also, one of the best parts of this movie is Gary Oldman as Sirius Black. We finally get to see, like, a good amount of time of one of the greatest actors to ever live kind of carry many scenes in this movie as Sirius Black because Sirius Black, we, we don't know a ton about him still up to this point. Like, obviously, we learned about him in Azkaban, but he's still disheveled and look looked like an animal. And he has a couple scenes of, like, normal dialogue when he's not acting crazy because he wants to kill Peter Pettigrew. And then Goblet of Fire, we only talk to him as a face in a fireplace, and we hear the letters. But to actually watch his performance as Sirius Black and create, give life to this character and, and watch this beautiful relationship budding between him and Harry... And he he puts on the charm big time. Oh yeah, like, he's a he's a cool he's guy. He's always winking at Harry, and he's always got a cup of wines. He's extremely cool. He's the coolest character 
in the franchise. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And I love Sir- Sirius Black is a great character. And it's fascinating his character because he's related to several other characters in the franchise. Like he's he's cousins with the long bottoms and also his cousin Bellatrix Lestrange, who we finally get to see Helena Bonham Carter, who's a highlight of the franchise for the last few films as Bellatrix and she just lights up the screen. But the fact that her and Sirius are related is just incredibly, like, it's so great what J.K. crafted with this family. Yeah, we learned so much more about that family tree, which comes into play in the Deathly Hollows as they're trying to find Horcruxes. And we see, we meet Creature for the first time. Yeah, so we, we yeah. go to 12 Grimmauld Place, which is the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix. Which... I love when the wall slides open and they show just muggles, like, watching a sitcom yeah, in front yeah. of the TV. It's really, it's really <laughs> clever. Muggles, they don't see nothing. <laughs> and um, so it's it's Sirius's childhood home. 12 Grimmel Place, but he gives it up to Dumbledore as the Order of the Phoenix, and it's so cool to learn about this secret organization of uh, the Weasleys are in it, and Lupin, and we see, we learn of, we, we meet Kingsley Shacklebolt, who's an awesome character as Tonks. well. Tonks. is awesome, then we get to spend time with the real Alistair Moody, this is when they come in and basically save, save Harry Potter from uh, Privet Drive and take him there. Although Moody, like, sticks out like a sore thumb in public. Yeah. Like, how does, like, if, if you saw that guy, you'd be like, who the hell is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and so 12 Grimmauld Place, it comes into play later on, obviously, in Deathly Hollows, and we learn about Sirius and how he was, like, the only Gryffindor of his pure-blood-crazed Slytherin family and how he was disowned by his own by his own mother and his, his face was cast out of the wall of the family tree. Yeah, and he despised his family, and, and it's it's ironic because it, it's a family like the Malfoys, his family. But he ended up being like like a, a Potter, like James, like James Potter, like Harry Potter, and that's why he joined James Potter and they formed that group. And and Sirius, unfortunately, like we we the thing with this film, and it, it do a good job with it because you end up loving Sirius in this movie so much more so than you did in Azkaban, and yet he's taken away from us so quickly. And that's so yeah. tragic when he dies. And what's so cool about his character is obviously he's he's a lot like James Potter, but he's also a lot like Harry. Like him and James were best buds. They probably have very similar personalities, very outgoing, very funny, um, very powerful wizards. But also he's similar to Harry where he grew up in a family where he didn't fit in. He was treated like scum. He ran away a lot of times. Uh, but Sirius had the opportunity to run away and be welcomed at the Potters anytime he wanted to. But Harry never had that. And also, but I would say that you're right. Sirius is more like Harry than James was because we learn in this film, we get a little nugget of Snape's backstory. Yeah, it's so interesting and, to see yeah. that he's in the Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, exactly. So Snape's in the Order. So again, we're beginning to trust Snape, especially from the last film too. And especially how he, he denies Dolores Umbridge using any more Veritaserum saying he ran out. But I would, I think he's just lying to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Snape, we learn, this is the first moment we learn that he actually had relationships with James Potter. And Sirius Black and the Marauders. And we end up learning that James, as great as Harry likes to think of his father, and I'm sure he was a great guy mostly, but he was a bully. And he was very cruel to Snape. And he honestly was, he was like the, the school bully to uh, Snape the, his entire life. Snivellous. Yeah. Yeah, so as they learn that Voldemort is using Harry's mind to, or there's a connection being created. And Harry has that nightmare of being the snake attacking Arthur Weasley. And then Dumbledore has Snape start lessons of occlumency to defend against legilimency, which is what Voldemort is using to breach Harry's mind. And during those lessons, as Snape is penetrating Harry Potter's mind, 
during one of them, Harry can't take anymore, and he rebounds the curse and looks inside Snape's mind. And this is a great little foreshadow and tease of what what more we're going to learn about Snape and his relationship, not just with uh, James and Sirius, but also with Lily Potter. And we see, you know, James, like you said, was a jerk to Snape, and I'm sure he grew out of that bully phase because Lily Potter wouldn't have obviously chosen him as a partner in life if he was like that his entire entire life. But I think that we can probably assume that the incident with the Whomping Willow is probably what changed James Potter's uh, behavior as being a bully to Snape. Yeah, absolutely. And Where they almost killed Snape. Yeah, exactly. Because of Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that that whole story. Dude, I don't know how they didn't just make a prequel and do them at Hogwarts. I would love to see that. And that would be so yeah, sick. Have and James, is, James is a seeker on the team. And, Man, it would have been so cool. And Snape would have been a main main player. They could have been like a villain plus also other nefarious that things. That could have been a school. bit, yeah, stuff they had. It to seems s- like every year at Hogwarts in its entire history, something, something terrible, happens. terrible yeah. happens. There's always something. And students just have to save the day. <laughs> always a potter. Speaking of Sirius Black, after being wrongfully imprisoned in Azkaban for 12 years and then living in caves, basically, in those ragged prisoner's clothes, Sirius Black managed to really clean up <laughs> thanks to Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer for his personal grooming needs. And Sirius went from, from ragged to dapper like magic. <laughs> the Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof. It's skin safe, 7,000 RPM. It has a wireless charger, built-in light. It's amazing, fellas. You need to get on Manscaped.com. Get their products for your personal grooming needs. Everyone listening, if you don't know what to get your man for a gift, if you have a guy in your life that you know you just want to show them show them how how much they mean to you, go to Manscaped. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping because this is stuff that guys will actually use. Yeah, yeah. So, but I recommend getting your hands on their new performance package 4.0, which is a bundle of their products at a lower cost, like their lawnmower, weed whacker, men's wipes, deodorizers, boxer briefs, t-shirts. Over two million men are using their products worldwide right now. Wide, 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 wide. Raiders of the Lost at checkout at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. That was funny. You like that? That was good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Sirius definitely cleaned up. Dude, he yeah, he went from ragged to rich. Like rags to riches. The, <laughs> the opening song of Goodfellas. He's got a great uh, mustache. Oh yeah. He's got yeah, he's he's dapper as heck. Like you <laughs> say, he's just cool. Yeah, hundred percent. Gary Oldman is the man. <laughs> I think Sirius was always my favorite character when I was younger. It's hard for me. Like, I always say Sirius Black is my favorite character, but I also really love Dumbledore. But we, usually, we just don't learn too much about Dumbledore until later on in the books, really. I also I really love Voldemort. Yeah. I think Voldemort's such a fascinating character and villain. You love the baddies, man. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, you, lo- you're you, lo- the, you you're love the, bad boys. You're the Slytherin. <laughs> I am a Slytherin. I think he's, yeah, he's the most interesting character for, for sure, Tom Myrtle Voldemort. And if you guys are curious, we actually have our own Patronus animals. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mine was a stag. I took the test. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm I'm basically James Potter. I'm a Potter. I have an otter. Yeah. So <laughs> you, I thought it was a gopher. No, no. I told you it wasn't the gopher. Sure. I looked it up. And I was like, no, that's not it. Are you sure looked, it's not a hamster? Then, you no, seem no. like a hamster Patronus. <laughs> like I bet you it comes out and it's on one of those wheels running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you seem like a hamster personality. No, it's an otter. Okay. <laughs> Same as Hermione. It's way cooler. Same as Hermione. Yeah, because we're wicked smart. Yeah, but that's one of my favorite scenes. Is like Dumbledore's army and Harry's teaching them spells and. He's teaching them how to do the Patronus, and you get to see basically everyone's personality brought out through their Patronus. Hermione's the otter, and then Ron's the dog. He's like a golden retriever, obviously. So yeah. it's it's really cool to see the the personalities coming out. And then he finally makes out with Cho Chang. Yeah, big time. Is she Ravenclaw? She is a Ravenclaw, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, I believe so for sure. Or was she? No, yeah, but she used to date Cedric Diggory, so that's why she's crying while they kissed. 
That's awkward. And Hermione's like, I'm, I'm sure Harry's kissing was more than satisfactory. <laughs> I love how obsessed his friends are with him and Cho Chang. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that scene's so awkward. They're like, oh, Harry's go gonna get go, it, Harry. He's gonna go kiss Cho Chang. Get let's, it in, Harry. Let's all, let's, we'll all just leave the room for requirement <laughs> while you guys make out. <laughs> Mistletoe. All right, anyways, you want to head into our intermission? Yeah, let's do it. Let's have some fun, and we'll, we'll start off with our movie quote competition. I'll go first. I have two. One is from our fan, Will Bo. If you find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face, do not be troubled, for you are, an Ele- for you are an Elysium, and you are already dead. <laughs> I think since I finished the quote, I know what it is. Classic. <laughs> Gladiator. Heck yeah, it's the opening battle scene, his speech. And then this one's for me. You're looking so well, darling. You really are. They've done a marvelous job. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you. <laughs> I don't know what sort of cream they've put down. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I can't make it through this. I don't know what sort of cream they've put on you down at the morgue, but I want some. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gustav from Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's at the yeah at the funeral. <laughs> I like I, my one of my that's my second favorite. My favorite quote is when he asks him. Uh, he he says uh, she was dynamite in the sack, by the way, and he goes she was eighty four. He goes. I've had older. <laughs> when you get to be my age, you, you enjoy the, uh, the the deep, the older cuts, more flavorful, <laughs> <laughs> the cheaper cuts. <laughs> it's not all prime rib and, and steak and fillet. <laughs> I go to bed with all my friends. <laughs> Classic. That's such a good movie. It really is. <laughs> I my I think my favorite part is when um the uh, Ed Norton and the soldiers show up to arrest Gustav, and he just looks at them. He turns around, and runs away. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, he's got his new film and come. Um, he begins production soon. His other new film, yeah, French yeah. A new film, French Dispatch, comes out October twenty second. Anyways, yeah. let's move on. This isn't a Grand Budapest episode. <laughs> Here's my movie quote. All right, my life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter so messed up because her real father is this large type asshole. I got a wife who we're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage in my third because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Oh yeah, I'll give everyone a moment. Oh, let me do an impression. My life's a disaster zone. <laughs> <laughs> I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because a real father's a large type asshole. <laughs> this is heat. It's Al Pacino. <laughs> That's a pretty good Al Pacino. Thanks. Not bad. She got a big ass. <laughs> and you got your head all the way up it. <laughs> Oh my god. I love that guy. All right. Movie release year. Guess the year this movie came out. The Devil's Advocate. Speaking of Elf. That's what I did. No way. It's 97. 1997. (laughs) That's wild. Uh, Yeah, that's what I did. That's so weird. Oh my god. It's called being a twin, everybody. (laughs) All right. Movie pop quiz time. What was Robert Pattinson's, aka The Batman, his first credited film role? Is it a popular movie? I don't know. Generally. You already want a hint? <laughs> Every time I ask for a hint, you're like, oh, you want a hint? No, no, you go, I, I do a, you say, hold on, was it this year or was it 80s or like early 90s? That was, and you're like time. watching me. That was see one time. React. That was one time. Our <laughs> pets. I don't know. Goblet of Fire. That's it? Cedric Diggory. Oh. He was in an uncredited role in some smaller movie. Then he was in like a TV movie, but not, but Goblet of Fire was his actual first like acting role. That's crazy. In a film, which is wild. Imagine that's your first movie. It's crazy. That's nuts. All right. I have another Pacino question. All right. 
What did Al Pacino win his sole Oscar before? Dog Day Afternoon. No. Oh, um. I'll give you another guess. Well, it's it's not Serpico. It's not. Is it Godfather? I'll take a guess. Just say Godfather Part Two. What is it? Scent of a Woman. Oh, you're right. The yeah. Blind Lawyer. Yeah. Oh man. Man, he's so good in that movie. He was he was in like no one. I couldn't believe he hadn't won before that. Yeah, it's crazy. Which is wild. He's probably Godfather Part Two. It's he's insane. You, and, you yeah, you can make the case he's the best actor ever. He's yeah, you, you could, could make that case. Could, that's a conversation for sure. He's top he's, five. He's unbelievable. Top five for sure. Unbelievable actor. All right. Um, biggest hater of the week. This was on TikTok. Some random commenter wrote, "Surprise, surprise." Y'all literally just watch the behind the scenes of movies that are on all the DVDs and report it. Like I've heard everything you're saying. First of all, who watches DVDs anymore? <laughs> like, come on, it's 2021. I replied. I think I responded to that to that person. Yeah, you said no. We record entire podcast episodes discussing the films. Check them out on any platform. These are just little. Little bits. This is on TikTok. We just post clips for high engagement on TikTok. That's all it is. People think like we just have like a fun fact TikTok every episode. Yeah, it's not what it is. It's a. It's a this is gonna be an hour and fifteen episode deep analysis of these characters and yeah, movies. Exactly. It's kind of. It gets annoying because when people don't know. People think that, but we put so much work into the show. You know what I mean? It's like wild. We, we put so and we put a lot of research in. That's why we know these facts because we do it to entertain y'all. We're thirty-seven minutes in. Yeah. It's been pretty good so far. We we got a pretty big following. I think people are enjoying it. The point of TikTok is try to get eyeballs, and we try to make viral clips and get engagement and make interesting, fun facts. That's pretty much what we use TikTok for. Sometimes, yeah, we put analysis stuff up there too, but also we're just making stuff that hits. Also, who cares? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, just let us do our thing. Jeez, Louise, just like the video or not, like scroll Don't away. Watch it. Just, these people just can't help but comment. You guys are terrible. <laughs> IMDb.com. I'm better than you. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Anyways, uh, biggest supporter of the week is uh, a review. It's a really nice one uh, from Ya235 on March 22nd. Spectacular. The best part about this podcast is that they don't try to wow you with cinema jargon or vocabulary. They're just two brothers giving their honest opinion and thoughts on film. The guys make it feel like you're in the room with them and give so much support and love to their fans and listeners. Truly my favorite podcast, and I get excited every Monday and Thursday when new content drops. Let's go. Thank you so Aww. much. Bringing tears my to heart. Our, my, my heart just That's threw really two sweet. sizes, just like the Grinch. Thank Aww. you so much. That's really nice. On this day in film history, today's July 15th. The Wedding Crashers premiered in 2005. <laughs> Half-Blood Prince was released in 2009. Stranger Things debuted in 2016. And it's also Forrest Whitaker's birthday, who is an Oscar winner. Wow. For Last King of Scotland? Yeah. Yeah, that's what he won for. Who starred in that movie with him? Uh, James McAvoy. Good job. My guy. I love it. It's a good movie. It's a great movie, yeah. Come on, come on. Who are you talking to? <laughs> My streaming recommendation for this episode is The Game, which is on Netflix. This is a very underrated David Fincher movie. It's a fantastic script. Really great uh, acting. Michael Douglas is the lead. And if you've never seen it, it's it's great suspense. It's one of his best movies, but, you know, he's made so many great ones that it's kind of in the shadows of his entire career. But definitely watch the game on Netflix. No serial killer, surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think there's serial killer, maybe. There isn't a single serial killer in this movie. But there's one, it's one of those movies where you have no freaking idea what the hell is going on until the last three minutes of the movie. Yeah, and it was back when he was still shooting on film. And it looks, it has the same aesthetic as, as Fight Club and Seven. Yeah. So it has that style of cinematography. It's a really beautiful and film. It's, it's very, like, same vibe as like eyes wide shut. Yeah, yeah, that mysterious vibe for yeah, sure. It's really, really good. It's awesome. 
my streaming recommendation is a new movie that came out on Amazon Prime called The Tomorrow War. Uh, it's Chris Pratt's new film. I remember I saw the trailer and I was like, ah, it, does, it looks okay. I'm not really sure about it. But I was like, I love Chris Pratt and he seems like a smart guy. And if he's going to do a project and produce it, it must be pretty good because he's such a big actor. Yeah, and he seems like he has a good head on his shoulders. And so I watched this movie and it surprised the hell out of me. It was super fun, crazy action, intense, scary. It has it's a little. The writing's not perfect at times. It starts a little slow, but once things get going in this movie, it is full tilt, like badass action, fantastic CGI, uh, amazing, amazing time. I really love the movie. But it's rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. It's right? rotten. You know, not the audience score though. Yeah, that's why we uh, don't give everything to Rotten Tomatoes. You yeah, know? they're uh, they're they're not as good as they used to be. Yeah, but it's, it, this is a movie where it's not trying to tell you anything. It's not trying to ideologize anything or talk about anything it's just a, a just a, a fun movie that's it and that's sometimes that's all i want to watch yeah you know yeah that's that's pretty cool um all right let's get back into the episode let's go and so like every harry potter film we're also introduced to new characters and new creatures obviously we talked about bellatrix lestrange we get luna lovegood luna looney lovegood who is such a fun character and kingsley shacklebolt Tonks, Dolores Umbridge, the real Alistair Moody, but also we have new creatures, specifically the Thestrals, which are a great concept that that uh, J.K. put into this story where you always thought that the carriages for the older years at Hogwarts were being pulled by themselves by a magical spell. But then we find out that they're being pulled by Thestrals, which are creatures that can only be seen by people who have seen death. And so Luna can see them and Harry can see them because they're, they're people who have seen true death in their lives. Death is uh, probably the major theme in this movie because Harry's dealing with the dealing with the death of watching Cedric Diggory die. And he's reeling and he has, like you said, PTSD. So death plays a major role in this film for sure. And those creatures are fascinating. Yeah, and Luna's so fun. And the actress who plays her, she was like a, a huge fan of Luna and she like got she nailed the audition apparently. I, I I've seen her in something else and she just talks like that normally. <laughs> <laughs> but she, Luna's very she says ridiculous funny things, but she's also very wise. And so when Harry's feeling very alone and he goes and walks into the Forbidden Forest after he sees the Thestrals flying around. He's like, maybe I'll go investigate and see what they're doing. He stumbles upon Luna, who's feeding the the Thestral, the little baby Thestral, whatever you like, the pony. And um, and she's talking the Thestry. <laughs> and she's talking about how she believes Harry, and she and Harry thinks that no one believes that he's telling the truth about Voldemort being back. And she's like, I don't think that's true. And she's also talking about. If I was Voldemort, and he's saying that he feels very alone, and she says that if I was Voldemort, I would want the same thing. I would want you to feel as alone as possible and like you have no friends or support because when, if you're alone, you're not as much of a threat. And so he can easily take care, take you out. And that's the point where Harry's like, I need my friends. I need to go back to Harry and Ron. I need to build a keep my friendships going because that's what's going to help me get through this entire path of destroying Voldemort or fighting Voldemort. Yeah, and she she's the way she is because she, her dad is very bizarre as well. Xenophilius. Yeah. And the love goods will play a major role, especially him. He's going to play a major role down the line. So Luna and her family are very important to the plot, even though we don't know it yet. So uh, I know it seems like she could be a small character right now, but she's going to be vital to the entire series. Yeah, and Dolores Umbridge and Harry, they just have a great back and forth throughout the entire— I thought you were going to say they have a great relationship. <laughs> 
It's almost as they're almost as close as him and Sirius. <laughs> and um it's a great back and forth and it kind of foreshadows him versus Voldemort in a way and you know she gives him detention and we have the iconic scene of where he's writing lines for her and she's like he's like you haven't given me any ink. She's like, "Well, you don't need any ink. This is a special quill." He's like, "How many times should I should I write it?" She's like, "Enough times for it to sink in." Which he doesn't realize is a literal metaphor of what's going to happen to him and she begins torturing him with the I must not tell lies uh markings on his hand which is being cut into his hand and she does this to all the students and the I must not tell lies comes into play later on Deathly Hollows too when he's he's talking to Rufus Scrimgeour after he's taken over the the head of the Ministry of Magic and he shows him like I must not tell lies or like this is the methods of the ministry and then he also says it to Dolores uh, later on in Deathly Hollows when they're stealing the Horcrux and he, but he says it to her in the forest to, in this movie as well yeah. when the, um, the centaurs are taking her away and she's like tell him I mean no harm and he's like I can't, Professor, I must, I must not tell lies. Yeah. Such a great line. That's like his line before like, before, like Arnold kills someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they also keep the, the tone light again, and I think Fred and George are a major factor in that because they're starting to develop wizarding wheezes. wheezes. They're having fun. They're the ones that are kind of like leading this like student rebellion against the establishment and authoritarian control of Dolores Umbridge. Yeah, and the, they what they want to do is like they want to use their sweets to influence the students to do things fun. Like they're, a lot of their sweets get kids sick so they can get out of class and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and eventually we'll learn that they, this is going to lead to their own business and they'll be wildly successful actually in the wizarding world. But this film, just like we said in the other films, JK puts little nuggets of things that come into play later in the series that are extremely important. And for this film, it's the room of requirement, you would say, is the biggest nugget of uh, something that seems just related to just this movie, but is going to be a major player in the latter films in the room of, requir- the room of requirement. It's actually kind of a funny thing because Albus Dumbledore, he discovered it one day by accident by um, walking down the hall and having to go to the bathroom really badly. And then the door just appeared and then he uh, went in and he found that it was a bathroom and then he and then he could never find that room again. So he assumed it must be a room that only appears when you have a, an exceptionally large bladder, <laughs> of an exceptionally full bladder. Yeah, I think they, they put that like. In the script with Ron saying, like, so if you needed to really uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. use the, a bathroom, like, yes, Ron. Yes, Ronald. Charming. Charming, Ronald. <laughs> and the room for a crime is great because who finds it? Neville Longbottom. So Order of the Phoenix is a great opportunity, and we see Neville grow immensely as a character because while we're in Dumbledore's army, Neville, you know, he isn't the best at magic. He has his skill set specifically in Herbology, which you find out, obviously, in Goblet of Fire. But he's getting better and better, and that's why everyone's so excited when he can finally cast the successful Expelliarmus charm. But we also learn that Neville's parents, he knows this, were tortured with the Cruciatus Curse by Bellatrix Lestrange, and it drove them insane. And actually, in the books, his parents are still alive. They're at St. Mungo's Hospital, like the uh, the, the the psych ward there. Yeah. And so, it's like an asylum. So Neville has this deep drive to want to fight back against Voldemort and, and the, the Death Eaters. And he wants to be a part of this. And it's something that he's been keeping secret. And he only tells Harry just for now. And there's a major thing about Neville that they never truly explored in the films, and it has to do with the prophecy because the prophecy comes into play at the climax of this movie when um, when they're in the Department of Mysteries and Neville sees that there's an orb, uh, a, crystal, a ball with Harry's name on it on the tag, and we end up learning that this is the prophecy that um, Trelawney gave saying uh, that motivated 
Voldemort to attack Harry. No, this is the prophecy from Prisoner of Azkaban that Trelawney makes to Harry, right? No, it's the first prophecy. I, I thought it, I thought this was the prophecy where it says the Dark Lord's servant will return and he'll have and his enemy will have power. I believe it says the uh, the no. This is the original one where a boy was born on this day and he will have the power. He will have a power that the Dark Lord does not understand. And then the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal gotcha. and his enemy. So that's this is that prophecy. It's the original one. Okay, so the prophecy in Prisoner yeah. of Azkaban is just about Ref Peter Pettigrew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this one refers to the original prophecy, which started all of this, which started Harry's storyline. And the prophecy basically, in so many words, said that <clears throat> a boy was born on a certain date, and this boy will have power that Voldemort doesn't understand, and Voldemort will mark him as his enemy and his, his equal. equal. His yeah. equal. And so when Voldemort was told this prophecy, uh, he discovered that two babies were born on that day. One was Neville Longbottom, and one was Harry Potter. And so Voldemort wasn't sure which boy the prophecy spoke of, and he decided, I'm going to go to the Potter's house for it. I'm going to go to the Potter's house first. I think he assumed the Potters were a bigger threat. Yeah. Like Sirius yeah. And, and James were a bigger threat to him than the yeah. Neville Long, than the I Longbottoms. I think so, but I'm not, I can't remember exactly. That's my assumption. Yeah. And so he went to the Potters first. He planned to kill both boys. Mm -hmm. That was his plan. I'm going to take them both out. I'm just going to go, maybe the Potters were closer on GPS. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he printed out some map quest instructions. And so Voldemort went, killed Harry, James, and Lily Potter. And then he like famously tried to kill Harry in... Um, everything happened when and Voldemort was defeated by this child, and th this prophecy could have applied to Neville just as much as it applied to Harry. And we've learned more about that in the books. And Harry, when he learns this from D Dumbledore, he's he becomes fascinated with the fact that like he could have been the boy who lived and not me, and how things would have been different. Maybe I'd still have my parents, and and Neville, uh, he would have lost his parents, and their roles could have been reversed. Yeah, exactly. But also, you have to factor in, would Neville's parents have done the exact same acts of sacrificing themselves for Harry in, in the same way that they did? You can assume that they loved their son so much that they would sacrifice themselves, but maybe it would have been a different circumstance where maybe they weren't even the, in the room and he just went and took the baby out, or maybe they had their wands and fought back, which wouldn't have been the same thing as, as sacrificing themselves completely yeah, for Harry. exactly. Which is what gives Harry the greatest power against Voldemort, which is the power that Vol like the prophecy says he'll never understand. Po power that is, will be able to defeat him, which is the power of love. Yeah, and ultimately the prophecy which Voldemort didn't, like you said, didn't understand is Voldemort created the ultimate weapon against him when he tried to kill Harry. Mm -hmm. and, but the prophecy is what led him to do it. Yeah. And one of my favorite scenes in this movie is we touched on it earlier where Harry and Sirius are talking and Harry's, you know, he had the vision of being the snake. He never told Dumbledore that he was the snake, but he tells Sirius he was the snake. And he's starting to, see, like you said earlier, he's, he feels like, am I becoming bad? Am I becoming more like Voldemort? I just, I'm angry all the time. And when I was talking, when Dumbledore was asking me about my dream, I he doesn't say it, but he's going to say, like, I wanted to attack Dumbledore. I think that's what they say in the book. And, and then he yells him, look at me. Yeah, he's, he's worried that he's becoming bad. But Sirius is trying to explain to him that you're a very good person who bad things have happened to. It's a very moving scene. And I think it's very enlightening for Harry to realize you're not Voldemort. You're not becoming like Voldemort. You just had some horrific things happen to you in your life. Yeah. And uh, one of the cool things about this film in this book is whenever we get to see contemporary London with wizards and using magic, it's always a lot of fun. 
generally it always takes place within the opening of the film with Harry uh, at the Dursleys or whatever. But with this film, we get two sequences of wizards, wizards and witches flying through uh, London, it's which really is cool. super fun to see the iconic uh, landmarks of London, especially at night. It's really beautiful. They and fly then, by Parliament, right? Yeah, so they fly by Parliament, um, and then they so and they then they use the Thestrals in, in the third act of the film. So it's always fun to see that the uh, wizards using magic in the modern culture of muggles. Yeah, and so there's so, speaking of the third act, there's so much to get into, but let's mm. take a moment and dive into uh, a word from our sponsors from Anthony. Movieposters.com is our great sponsor. Use our promo code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. They have a wide selection of movie posters, pretty much every film imaginable. If you're checking out our set on YouTube, we hope you are. You can see that it is decorated with dozens of these amazing posters, high quality. They have pretty much every size imaginable, framing, backlighting. They can do it all. Don't go to Amazon.com for your poster needs. I know it's free shipping, but the quality is not even close to MoviePosters.com. If you're a fan of TV, if you're a fan of television, there's no better way to express that love by decking your place out with a ton of posters. Again, use our promo code Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. And the third act of this movie is stacked because after they're taking their OWLs, which is a major th uh, part of their class activities at school, this is the year they have to take these exams to see if they can uh, move on to, what's the next one? Is it some of an N? I can't remember. Yeah, some, Newt's? Newt's, yeah. yeah. Newt's. And so... Um, during the examination, Fred and George, you know, they've had enough. They, they can't take it anymore. And they realize, you know, education isn't going to be for us. We're, we're going to go a different path in our lives. And they have the great fireworks scene where they, uh, dis they, uh, they disrupt the examination. And they have the giant dragon firework go after Dolores. But also, as, as all the students are celebrating, Harry has that vision of Sirius being tortured by Voldemort. And Harry... His naivety and his love is probably a weakness of him sometimes because he wants to try and rescue Sirius, even though the signs of what Snape tried to talk to him about and Hermione tried to talk to him about where Snape's explaining to him that with legitimacy, Voldemort would torture his victims by creating visions to drive them mad or to control them. So this could be a fake vision. Sirius might not even be there at all. And so, but Harry doesn't care. Harry's going to recklessly try to save the only family he has left, which I'm sure many of us would have done the same thing in his shoes. Yeah, exactly. And and this is the wizarding world. They don't have like cell phones where he can just call Sirius and be like, you okay, fam? <laughs> <laughs> you would wish. But when we uh, go to the Ministry of Magic, which it's a good job in the book, but in the movie, but the book, it's so much more detailed. There's yeah, so there's much more the way they get in. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Like the scenes with the brains and then the, the doors that they have to mark and like they're going inside which ones where the prophecies are. It's really cool what they do because, again, there's so much in the book that you can't put in the movie. Yeah, in this movie, they just cut to, from them flying to like they're running in the ministry. In the, in the, yeah, <laughs> it's like, how did they get yeah. in? I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> but there's also another part of the movie that's in the book that's not in the movie, which I, I wish they could have done somehow, is the, the magic galleons they use to communicate mm -hmm. for the Dumbledore's army because yeah. that comes into play in Half-Blood Prince because that's the way Draco uses to communicate with the Death Eaters to get them inside Hogwarts. Yeah, I think there's just so many things that they just, they had to pick and choose. Like, they, they do, I like, there are little things that they kept in that I love, like, when they're spying on the Order with the ear yeah. that hangs down, stuff like that. They, like, but when it comes to that, like, 
I think they figured we're not going to use this in Half-Blood Prince, so we don't need to put it into order. Yeah. And so the Ministry of Magic, these it's such a cool sequence because these sets are huge. They're enormous. And we actually got come back later on in the franchise. And it's some of my favorite shots of them just running through the, the order. Of, I mean, running through the Ministry of Magic and the duel that takes place in the center of the Ministry of Magic. And then the sets are really great because then we have the hall or the room full of all the prophecies huge set the room of uh, the department of mysteries yeah it's really cool yeah. and um we learn about how you have to the the prop the only person who can retrieve a prophecy is who it's made about and so that's why the death eaters need harry and voldemort needs harry to go find the prophecy and retrieve it so that they can bring it to voldemort yeah so the vision of where he saw sirius he saw the number isle and so that's why they went to that specific spot because the Death Eaters knew that's where his prophecy was. Hence, Neville seeing the prophecy with his name on it. And so why doesn't Voldemort just go get it himself since he's part of the prophecy as well? Again, he's trying to keep that level of secrecy and anonymity from the entirety of Wizarding World. He only comes out when he has to. Yeah, so he comes out because the Death Eaters get, they, they lose the prophecy. They drop it and they get overtaken by the Order of the Phoenix. And so because of their failure, that's what causes Voldemort to come and try to clean things up. Yeah. And like we said earlier, the battle is epic, and when he chases Bellatrix and he, he tests out the Crucio curse for a moment, and then that's when Voldemort appears. Crucio! Crucio! Crucia! Cruciatus. Cruciatus. But, well, he says Crucia. He well, says when he casts it, you yeah, say Crucio. I know, but I'm saying the way Voldemort did it in Goblet. Yeah. That's how he did it. Crucio! <laughs> yeah. But I will say, there's something in this movie, and David Yates did it again in Deathly Hallows Part 2, that just didn't, they didn't feel right. Now, after the battle with Dumbledore, and after after Voldemort uh, possesses Harry, when Harry defeats him inside of his mind, Voldemort comes out, and it seems as the the way they're depicting it, it seems as though he's frozen time in a way, and then he's speaking to Harry, and he said he says, "Um, you're a fool, Harry Potter. You will lose everything, everything." Yeah, but that's some, and then they it's a moment where it doesn't really make sense. I know that they were trying to. Hang on for Voldemort to be there so the uh, the ministry people can see him. But Dumbledore's just sitting there on his knees, like looking up at him. Yeah, it's just a, a it's a weird thirty seconds where why isn't Dumbledore attacking him? Why isn't Voldemort trying to kill Harry right there in that moment? And it's just it's a, it's an awkward moment, a beat right there. No, well, it seems like he did freeze time inside like this bubble. Yeah, either, and so which is interesting, but also. He could have just killed Harry. Yeah, that's he, what I'm saying. He could have just taken him out. No, even though, even if Dumbledore, if he's slowed down time so much that yeah. Dumbledore couldn't even see him, he couldn't even react, he could have just taken him out. Yeah. He's, he's pointing his wand at him. He's like, you'll lose everything. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I could just kill you now, but yeah. I guess I'm just going to get out of here. Exactly. So, and it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. For, not, that's not how it happens in the books. And it's very cinematic. Mm -hmm. And it's a cool line to say. But that's the moment where whenever I see it, I'm like, why doesn't he just do it right there? Yeah. And also, so, and David Yates did another thing. He did a similar thing in Deathly Hallows Part 2, which we'll talk to you about in detail, but it's the same kind of thing that they did where when Voldemort and Harry are having their epic battle, and it's before they're on the grounds doing the wand tips, It's they're battling throughout the castle, and there's a moment where Voldemort, like, wraps him up with his robes, and then Voldemort just grabs him by the throat and starts talking to him, and it's like, just kill him. Just kill him. Oh, yeah. why, why not, like, just why not just kill him? Do the job right here. Why are we? Why are you tying him up with these rope straps? And 
It's, Even it, if you did tie him up with yeah. the rope straps, now you can kill him. Yeah, and, and it's like it looks cool, but it's another moment just like this that they put in. I think Yates might have added it. I would say where it's like it doesn't really make sense, and like it just kind of takes you out of the moment. Yeah, it there also looks good on trailers because I think that rope thing was in the trailer. Definitely in so the trailer. So I think they're like, yeah. what can we incorporate for a trailer that we yeah. can put in the movie for a couple seconds? But I just think that when you have two people battling to the death and one of them completely overpowers the other person. It doesn't kill them. It takes you out of the danger. Yeah, because it's not really like that in the books. Yeah. But um, before the battle between Voldy and Dumbledore, we have the tragic scene where Sirius dies. And it's it's even more tragic because Harry and Sirius are fighting side by side. And when Harry casts a spell, Sirius goes, nice one, James. And it's like, oh, it's, it's like he's he's James to him. He's, he's, they're brothers. They're, mm-hmm. they're family. And then Bellatrix does the killing curse to, to, to Sirius out of the blue and just like takes the first time we see it done since Goblet. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the only two times we've seen it done at this point. Yeah, it, and, and like you said, it's tragic that we just get to know Sirius and he's already taken away from us. He's already taken away from Harry. Yeah, that's why. And, and Harry, he kind of he kind of foreshadows this happening when he's training the kids. And he tells them that like out there in the real world when you're fighting and someone's trying to kill you, it's just like it, a, a, you could be dead in a second. You know what I mean? You don't know what that's like. Exactly. And so that kind of like prepares the audience for uh, watching this happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then we have the epic battle of Dumbledore versus Voldemort. Dumbledore comes through the the flu network. He's oh, like, yeah. He's like, it was foolish of you to call to come here, Tom. And this is great because Dumbledore does not call Voldemort Voldemort. He calls him Tom. Yeah. He calls him Tom Riddle to his face because he doesn't have the respect that everyone else has for this evil wizard. Yeah. And we'll come to learn that, Vol- that Dumbledore is the one who found Tom when he was a kid. But mm-hmm. it, this battle... It's everything you wanted to see in the battle. They did a, an amazing job uh, depicting it. Like I said earlier, the, the magical spells they're doing is just wild. The CGI looks absolutely fantastic and stunning. And it's just fascinating to see because, because up to this point, we've seen the basic spells like Stupefy, Expelliarmus, Expecto Patronum, like just the basic spells. But we, ne- we haven't seen too much of like fantastical magic being performed on a scale that's so massive and this just let up just open the door for the realm of possibilities with this world yeah and what's so interesting about it even more is as voldemort is fighting dumbledore who voldemort thinks he's more powerful than him dumbledore is only on the defense really he's not doing attacking spells he's trying to protect harry at all costs that's his main objective here and voldemort's giving him everything he's got you could say and dumbledore basically is with ease deflecting every offensive spell that he has and you can see the look on voldemort's face where he's like wow he's actually really powerful i, I think i've been underestimating this person yeah in you're right. He is doing all defensive spells because Voldemort sticks the fire dragon on him, and and Voldemort turns it back on him, whips it, whips it around, and then he him shooting the glass at him, turning it to sand, and then also he use, he does bring the water up and tries to drown Voldemort. That yeah. is a time where he attacks, but it is in defense. Mm-hmm. You're right. So. I think at this point, Voldemort, maybe one of the reasons why he also leaves is because I might not be full at full strength enough to take on Dumbledore one-on-one. Well, he 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 also, he never admits it, but that's why he goes to get the Elder Wand because he thinks that the Elder Wand is what always gave Dumbledore more power than him, although he would never admit that Dumbledore was more powerful than him. He would say it was the Wand, which is why I couldn't defeat him. Yeah, because... His arrogance is a, a a great weakness of his, and it forces him to be ignorant, especially of the power of love, which he thinks is a silly power and a silly magical gift, because that's what drives Voldemort out of Harry's body when he tries to possess him. Harry's being possessed after 
uh, Dumbledore goes inside of him and we're going through all his memories and you think that Harry's going to get broken down by Voldemort, but then it's because of the love that's coursing in Harry's veins that he's he's able to love, he's able to have friendship, and he feels sorry for Voldemort because he'll never have any of those things. Voldemort has no friends. Voldemort is sickened by love. Poor he'll guy. never have a relationship like that in his entire life, and that's what he'll never, ever come to understand, and he always just passes love off as some some silly weakness among humans. He has no Twitter followers. None. Oh, he's probably got Twitter. Dude, I'm sure he would have plenty of Twitter followers. Oh, yeah, actually, he would have a ton. He'd yeah. have several million. Yeah. Posting, like, those Alfani suit yeah. ads. <laughs> and ironically, like, there's there's people that would want to be close to him. Well, Bellatrix, yeah, is, Bellatrix is in love with him. Obsessed with him and thinks, yeah. they all think they're close to Voldemort, yeah. each one of them. But he never, ever allows them to get even close to having any kind of friendship or real relationship. He always looks at them as, like, pawns and minions to yeah. him but the ending is very important because that's when cornelius fudge and the auras come and they see voldemort has revealed himself at the ministry of magic right He's before back. and it's important to see him so that the prophet can actually in the ministry of magic like actually believes harry and dumbledore now but um why again would he re reveal himself impulsivity and again failures the failure of his death eaters caused him to come to the ministry of magic yeah he never wanted to Mm -hmm. It was he just wanted Malfoy and the others to handle it for him. Yeah, and then we have Dumbledore and Harry in Dumbledore's office, and this is a really important scene. In the book, Harry actually trashes Dumbledore's office; he goes crazy. But I guess they didn't want to do that for the movie, and it's a much more somber moment. And Harry's trying to understand why Dumbledore. What Dumbledore? Why are you talking to me now? Why are you being uh, friendly to me now? You've been ignoring me for the entire year. What Dumbledore's trying to Dumbledore's trying to explain to him is that he was starting to discover and understand the connection that Voldemort had with Harry, and he thought it would be best for Harry's protection and safety to be as distant from Harry as possible. And also, it's important that they that Voldemort not think that him and Dumbledore are very close, so that that could also be more protection from Harry, so that it, it would less entice Voldemort to want to possess Harry sooner. Yeah, and like if because if Voldemort if Voldemort saw that Dumbledore and him were close, he would have tried to invade his mind earlier. Yeah, and would have maybe seen the plans that Dumbledore was, was trying to create to defend the entire world against Voldemort. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, Dumbledore it, is always acting in Harry's interests. He, and he does take responsibility for Sirius's death because, you know, a lot of this, the blame does fall on Dumbledore's shoulders for how he handled the entire situation. Yeah, and this is, this is a great film that sets the stage for the war to come, and Half-Blood Prince will be, you know, the basically the penultimate episode to the war. Yeah, and so again, the, one of the main themes of the entire film is change. You know, Hogwarts changes, the world changes, and the tone and the mood of the characters and the storyline change big time because, like you said, we're starting to go to war. Let's go. Oh, man. LFG. That was a good episode. Yeah. Want to do some fun facts? Absolutely. All right. Let's see what we got. Okay, this is a funny one. During filming, Alan Rickman banned Matthew Lewis and Rupert Grint from being within five meters of his new BMW because during the making of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, they accidentally spilled a milkshake inside his car. <laughs> I bet he was so pissed. <laughs> Helen McCroy, McCrory, who actually just passed away recently. She did? Yeah. You didn't know that? The actress? Yeah. From what? Um... I think cancer or something. Really? Yeah, I didn't yeah, know you know that. she passed away. No. Yeah, yeah. Was, I don't even think she finished filming *Peaky, Peaky Blinders. Blinders*. Oh my god. Um, she was originally cast as Bellatrix Lestrange, but due to her pregnancy, she had to be replaced by Helena Bonham Carter. Um, but McCrory was later invited back and cast as Narcissa Malfoy, who is Bellatrix's sister in *Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince*. Yeah, they, they seem like sisters. They mm -hmm. always did. Ivana Lynch, who plays Luna Lovegood, 
Luna Lovegood, she beat out 15,000 girls auditioning for the role of Luna. And she was the, she was originally ninth in line of 30 finalists. But when one of the producers, David Barron, saw her tape, he immediately said, she is Luna. And unknown to them, Lynch had actually written a fan letter to J.K. Rowling directly. Yeah, she's perfect for that role. She's absolutely perfect for Luna. Emma Watson was seriously considering whether or not to keep acting in the franchise after this installment, but decided to after Order of the Phoenix, but decided to stay after considering that it would be uncomfortable to watch the movies being made with someone else as Hermione. You know, there were there were reports that she didn't want to be in Deathly Hollows too. Remember? Yeah. She, and she's like, was done with the franchise. I believe most of the time, stuff like that is just things that the actor's PR team put out to get a better deal for, for uh, their contract. Probably. It's all about contract negotiations, so they, they'll put out word that, like, oh, I don't want to be in this movie anymore, and that then the studio will kind of panic and be like, okay, uh, we, need, we need to get you back. Here's some more money. So I think that maybe not that one, but definitely the Deathly Hallows one. Yeah, you're Like, you're right. not going to be in the Deathly – like, you're almost done with it. Just, <laughs> you're not going to be in the last one. Are, are you kidding me, Emma Watson? Yeah, you're probably right. It's definitely all, like, money-driven. Oh, this is actually a good one. So in the books, they actually go to St. Mungo's and they visit Neville's parents at the uh, psych ward. And also Gilderoy Lockhart is there in the book. And so Sir Kenneth Branagh was originally set to return as Gilderoy Lockhart in a brief cameo. Um, but this scene was ended up being cut. But we would have seen Lockhart as having the irrevocable amnesia from the backfired curse from Chamber of Secrets. That would have been funny. Stephen King said that the character of Dolores Umbridge was one of the greatest fictional villains to come along since Hannibal Lecter. One of the one of the cons to this movie is actually no Quidditch, but eventually Dolores Umbridge does suspend all group or activities. But in the book, Ron Weasley is actually selected to join Harry's Quidditch team and starts training for the Quidditch Cup. But they're you know it's disappointing that they didn't get to see any of that. Mm-hmm. No time. Ain't go, nobody got time for that in Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> I think that's it for, for Order of the Phoenix. Want to do our superlatives? Oh, yeah, superlatives. Yeah. All right. Who is your MVP? Danny Radcliffe. He's fantastic in this movie. I would say that um, Harry Potter, the character, is the MVP. He carries the movie big time. Yeah, same, yeah. same guy. Yeah. <laughs> Best scene. The duel. Yeah, Dumbledore Come versus on. Voldy. Come on. Yeah. Best shot. The wide shot of the duel. <laughs> there's a, there's a ton of great wide shots in this movie. And the like, really wide one. Yeah, there's yeah. there's the great one, a wide one of them, and you see like that great enormous hallway of the Ministry where all the f- the flu network fireplaces are. And also there's a shot, a really great wide of following Luna as she's like skipping down the hall going to the uh, Dumbledore's army practice. And there's another really good one of Professor Trelawney being almost banished by Dolores Umbridge in the courtyard. And so that scene opens up with a really great wide of it. My favorite shot is um in the ministry when when Voldemort appears. It's the shot starts on Daniel Radcliffe and then it pans and then Voldemort kind of just appears and it's a really great camera pan uh, into the scene. Mm-hmm. It's a good shot. Best actor, Danny Radcliffe. Come on, I got Imelda Staunton as Dolores oh, Umbridge. That's a good pick. I think she gives the best performance. Actually, for sure. I think I'm gonna change. Yeah, yeah. Dan Dan's great, but she did a phenomenal job. Yeah. Best line. You're the weak one. You'll never know love or friendship, and I feel sorry for you. Nice. I did. You're a fool, Harry Potter, <laughs> and you will lose. That's funny. Those are back-to-back lines. Yeah. 
All right, that wraps our episode on Order of the Phoenix. Thank you so much for everyone tuning in wherever you are listening and watching. Make sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast to get all those bonus episodes and cool perks. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. The like button helps a lot too. Leave a comment. Follow wherever you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, hit the notification bell, and we'll see you on Monday. Take care, everyone. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.